Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Our podcast and radio show explore the world's cultural landscape. We engage at the intersection of digital media, sound art, and social practice to spark conversations about contemporary art, film, and architecture. Today, we consider complex exhibitions, performances, and interventions that challenge the resources of traditional art spaces. Seeking out the backstories, we find out what makes exceptional art experiences possible. Every October, London is abuzz with Art Week. This year, the Serpentine Gallery is definitely buzzing for a specific reason. Conceptual artist Pierre Wieg's new exhibition, Umwelt, is about to open. The gallery's installation team has been working nonstop to materialize one of the artist's signature ecosystems. Its central feature is an incubator birthing thousands of flies. This is the latest in Wieg's transformative art encounters. He's one of many contemporary artists who consistently push past the limits of traditional exhibition spaces. Together with curators, installers, technicians, performers, and program producers, these creatives achieve the extraordinary. Whether inviting animals and insects into an installation, disrupting architecture, presenting transmedia environments, or choreographing rigorous performances, they require collaborators with the energy, imagination, and stamina to address complex logistics. In 2014, a Pierre Wieg retrospective traveled to the United States to the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. We discovered a post by one of the exhibition's invigilators on the LACMA blog, Unframed. Los Angeles-based poet Brian Sonia Wallace performed a special role at the entrance of the gallery every day for four months. I was living actually around the corner from LACMA at the time, and they, they had a call on some cultural forum that I was a part of looking for actors to come and audition, the term that they use for this name announcer role. So I thought, well, it's around the corner from my house. Let me kind of check it out and see what it is. And that was actually the only time I met Pierre Wieg. He was there and there were, I don't know, like 30 or 50 people. It was a multiple day process. One of these things, you put a call out for actors in LA and there's no shortage of responses. And it was very simple. The gallery was still under construction and the walls were still being put up. So it kind of showed you a spot where you'd stand and you had to practice as fellow auditioners walked in, asking them for their names and then announcing their names into the under construction gallery. And what was actually really cool about that particular piece as it got underway is that people inside the exhibition space would start kind of interacting with people as they came in, like they would maybe clap for people as they were announced or they would cheer. I think a lot of peers work in the way that it is. The uh, audience completes the artwork. It's really about taking people out of the, the everyday space and putting them into this surreal space. And but was treating it as this very stereotypical LA red carpet as people were coming in. And then they'd come into this weird, dark, abandoned looking space. There are, you know, terrariums and ants crawling out of the walls. So there was a, a juxtaposition there because he also wanted the name announcers to be wearing full tuxedos at all times. That really points to the visitor as a very important part of the experience. As much as some of Pierre's stuff, maybe a, a little bit of an FU to maybe those who are not so initiated and in that it's not laid out for you or spelled out, I think there is that acknowledgement that the visitor is the star of the show. You describe that space as a weird labyrinth. There were songs that would start playing abruptly and stop abruptly. The lighting would change on a timer. There were a lot of things on timers that would kind of go on and off. I know that Pierre Wee likes to describe his stuff as systems interacting 
and evolving organically or the idea that the stuff that happens in the gallery takes on a life of its own. One of the things that I got to observe being there four months, pretty much every day for a number of hours a day, was how some of those systems break down. The museum worked with a team of beekeepers who I got to be friends with because one of the pieces was a statue with a beehive on its head. Right before the museum opened, there was some weather event and the bees had a big die-off and so they had to scramble to get a new hive around the statue's head. As folks were coming outside to do it, it was just past the water screen and sometimes a couple with the bees would get trapped in the water and would be on the floor. So there's a little bit of a safety thing, you know, if you've got folks coming in and there's dead bees around. The ants were my favorite, though, because there were days when the ants were just lethargic. They were in the wall, but they didn't crawl out of the wall. Wick famously introduced dogs into Untilt, the wild world he created for Document 13 in Castle, Germany. Two hounds, one full-grown with a vivid pink-painted foreleg, the other still a puppy with one paw painted pink, freely roamed Wig's secret garden within Kausau Park. Our casual canine guides encouraged us to wander through the mud, around compost piles and past a stand of psychotropic plants. The clearing just beyond was where the equally famous bee-headed female statue made her first public appearance. One of the dogs came to L.A. The dog with the pink leg named Human was absolutely the star of the exhibition. It was one of those funny things where there's all of this incredibly technically complex art going on, and the thing that, of course, everyone was the most excited about was the live dog. The local Humane Society was up in arms because she's a breed that's naturally really thin, and you can see the ribs. And I think there'd been a piece done... I want to say at a Mexican museum a few years before where someone had starved a dog. That process of watching the dog starve had been the artwork. As such things happen when things get out and blow up, people going, oh, you're not feeding that dog and talking to the museum and like having really intense debates to the point where they had to put out, along with the little map that they gave people, just a little pamphlet of paper that says, here's the dog's breed. This is how they're supposed to look. She's healthy. She's in good shape. But that was one of the most common things. People would come up to me and be like, is the dog okay? Is the dog been fed? There were different kinds of ecosystems and an ecosystem with actual water lilies from Monet's garden. You described it as grungy. Yeah, but sort of algae on the tank. It definitely was not trying to romanticize it or recreate an idealized version of the piece. What I thought was interesting about that one is they had a curator who would give tours but not open to the public. They were very selective and here and there. And that was where a lot of the things, like the fact that the the water lilies were from Monet's garden, I would never have known. It wasn't written anywhere. It wasn't listed anywhere. It was something that I was on a break and he was giving a tour. And so I tagged along and eavesdropped. And so I think that there was a, a lot of stuff like that, There's these sort of Easter eggs where you'd really have to maybe research the pieces or go into them to learn some of the references. I mean, the great thing about how weird the exhibition was is that people didn't know how to react and so were really, really respectful because the art is an environment or an experience rather than something on the wall. Everyone walking through was part of it and everyone standing there was part of it. You couldn't make that separation between, well, here's the art and here's the audience and here's the museum staff. Everyone in that space was part of the art in some way or another. In theory, the system was perfect. We could enter the building and stay for a year. Pierre Week continues to experiment in relational aesthetics that blur notions of inside and outside, insisting that nature be allowed to invade cultural spaces and intentionally distressing his project environments. New York-based artist Sarah Oppenheimer, on the other hand, alters our bodily experience of art spaces by reimagining their existing architecture. Kristen Heilman, contemporary art curator for the Baltimore Museum of Art, invited Oppenheimer to design two permanent interventions for the contemporary wing. In our 2012 conversation, we consider the challenges of the projects. So when I was approached by the museum, I was asked to 
come take a look at the at the space of the museum and in particular I was asked to take a look at this triangular wedge space that bridges an older wing of the museum and not only older in the construction date but older in the collection that it houses and the newer contemporary wing of the museum and I was asked to think about creating a work in that kind of wedge-like wall that has a set of pre-existing openings in it. And given the scope of the project, it became quickly apparent I couldn't radically change either the limestone wall, which was a previous facade of the building, or the concrete cylindrical structure, which remains the boundary space of the atrium zone. So I started to look for spaces within that that were porous, and specifically spaces within those edges that were porous and would border in exciting ways on other spaces in, let's say, not simply a a one-to-one condition where you have one space touching on another space, but where you might have one space touching on two other spaces or one space touching on three other spaces. And that was really how those locations were developed. You've said that your work relates to cognitive science, and I know myself, as I experienced it just now, that I definitely had a sense of a bodily impression and a psychological impression of the work. Uh, Talk to me more about that relationship with your interventions. Well, I find cognitive science to be a very rich field in terms of instructing and investigating questions regarding bodily reception and and experience in a space. I also think that it removes actually any sort of, I'm not sure if I would say spiritual or phenomenological questions, but it, it very much concretizes them in an empirical investigation. And I, I find that to be a much clearer way to think about and to anticipate how people will um, experience something. It's very interesting to think of architecture as a set of nested memory containers so that each space has a different uh, sense of experiential time. And I think that museums, particularly the way museums are curated, rooms function in that sense as well. So each room becomes a marker of a certain historical period or a certain uh, conceptual moment. And I very much like the idea of playing or troubling that. The second intervention is more of an incision. I'm curious what effect that had for you of cutting through space. Well, one of the things I've been interested in in the past two years is how spaces are demarcated not only by the quality of the surfaces that surround them or the quality of the volume or air temperature or sound, but also very specifically by light. And one of the most striking things to me uh, that bordered that the contemporary wing that was marked by this limestone wall was that on one side you had this flavin and on the other side you had this very subdued warm lighting that illuminated the cone collection and I was interested in thinking about not necessarily opening a sight line but opening a diffuse lighting condition that allowed for um, a glow a, a light-based glow between these two zones of space There are two aspects of that that I'm very excited about. First of all, the works in the gallery that are immediately surrounding the piece in the cone wing um, were selected in conversation with the work in a number of ways that I found very surprising. But additionally, in the gallery just adjacent to the gallery with the piece, where you actually have a longer sight line towards the work and you see this long magenta glow in the wall, you have this extraordinary Matisse, which has a very similar color, although in that case it's a very, it's a painted color as opposed to a light generated color. And that set of relationships, of color relationships, is really exciting to me. I notice, and we can hear it right now, there's a sound art piece that comes and goes through that incision. Yes, that's that's very, very exciting. That was definitely a very unusually 
exciting decision by Kristen, which was to use the opening not only for light and sight to pass through, but also to have sound filter through the galleries up into the upstairs of the contemporary wing. I just think it's fascinating. I love it. It's a haunting moment with the space that I experienced uh, with that glow on the Flavin side in particular. It, and that voice, it seemed almost like you were in a chapel of some kind. Miami's Paris Art Museum invites experimental projects into its somewhat unconventional space, a design by Herzog and de Meuron. Not long ago, Sarah Oppenheimer created a temporary installation for one of the sunlit spaces. She designed two pivoting forms, surfaced in glass, to reflect the building's open plan and the tropical environment outside. Preparing for Miami-based artist Dara Friedman's 2017 mid-career retrospective at the museum presented its own set of challenges. Friedman and curator Renee Morales had to figure out how to show 17 film projects simultaneously in a vast space with a fluorescent lighting grid and more than a few floor-to-ceiling windows. The exhibition titled Perfect Stranger demanded a darkened, multi-chambered environment and a sizable array of both vintage and new technology. an extremely interesting and challenging project because Dara's primarily works in film and video and this is a, a mid-career survey and how do you make those two things happen? You know, usually how do you do a survey of an artist who works in a time-based medium and who makes works that in some cases can live with each other in the same space but in many cases cannot. Each work needs its own dedicated space uh, and that raises all sorts of technical, logistical challenges, having to do a sound leak, light leak, and just the general experience for the viewer. I'm always interested in experimenting with exhibition formats, and this one is just inherently an experimental format for an exhibition, so I love that aspect of this project. Dara, I don't know if you want to go into a little bit more of the ideas and the philosophy behind how we went into this. You know, there's the issue of what can live together really, like what's going to shout over another thing and how can these things sit next to each other. And also, this museum is so beautiful architecturally that I wanted to not be in denial of where we were. I don't know, so many factors. But the sound was the biggest challenge, and then the idea came of the, the acoustic curtains. But it was all very risky, because <laughs> I've normally only shown one work at a time and let it rip. So that was moving forward in a really delicate way. It was definitely uncharted territory. <laughs> really does work. We're talking about the first room with the mixture of silent film and these different installations. Right. I love that how you referred to the experience as a theater of the mind. The curtains certainly make that work. There's sort of what they're about and then they're how the viewer experiences them. So it's sort of knowing what it's about on paper and knowing how the body receives that work, dealing with those two bits of information at the same time. There's no words. It's all body memory, gesture, the sensorial. There's sound, but it's the visceral. I like how that works in that combination of stillness and action and 
the performative quality of the works in that space. I love the combination and the singing one, the dancing one, how there's some lyrics to the one that's musical, yet it's very physical. public too. I want to talk about that, the role of the public experience of your work. Well, first of all, in a musical, those aren't my words in the performer's mouth. They're their words. So I asked them what they wanted to sing and what they wanted to say. I just offer the opportunity and the platform for it. Renee is sort of hosting the platform and the opportunity to say different things that this moment when you invite somebody to step up and open up is half of it, <laughs> more than half of it. I think it's really important to come and see and physically hear work in a museum because we do it together. It's not something that you do by yourself behind your computer screen anonymously. The, something, something else happens when you collectively engage in seeing and feeling. That's why I like to leave a glow in the room. I don't want the rooms to be pitch dark. I want to know who you're there with. I want there somehow to be this sort of intermingling of atoms with the work, with the other people that are there. I think that's important. It's hugely important. I really like that about how you've in each room provided experience of a different scale, like the tiger tail piece. That was such a gorgeous little vignette. Just this little mythical story for me, a poem. Most of these works have a predetermined way of being shown. Uh, like Tiger Tail that you mentioned, you tend to show it about that scale. There are a few pieces that are very flexible, like Government Cut Freestyle, you mentioned, can be at a very huge scale, can be small. All these decisions are totally thought through on Dara's part. It's not an incidental, it's an integral part of the work, how it's shown in physical space. Uh, and it's not just about scale, it's about the exact nature of the equipment, every type of decision. Now, on top of that, I'll add that for Dara, from the beginning, it was very important that each work is shown in a way that's very distinct from the other. As you go through the show, that was very thought through as well, this idea of creating texture. You afford the possibility of the viewer coming into each space and coming to each piece and feeling a different sensation, a different experience, and thinking about the ways in which each piece is different, not just visually and experientially, but also conceptually. Showing Friedman's films in their original versions required tracking down the necessary projectors, as well as reliable backup equipment. Enter a very special knowledge base and tech source, Obsolete Media Miami. Local artists Kevin Arrow and Baron Shearer launched Obsolete Media in 2015 and began establishing a picture and moving image archive. Their space is a growing resource for artists, curators, designers, filmmakers, researchers, and writers. We head to the studio to see for ourselves. So we are in a zone called Obsolete Media. I'm with Kevin Arrow, one of the founders, and this place is just a gold mine of things archaic and fascinating about technology that many of us have lived with for years and now don't know what to do with, and Obsolete Media has an answer. Correct. Welcome. You are in the Miami Design District above Harry's Pizza in an 1,100-square-foot studio space. It's truly an experimental project, from the name to what's taking place here. But it is essentially a repository for a couple of unique collections 
of materials and tools that are made available for inquisitive people interested in working with time-based media. Mm -hmm. So I'm a time-based media artist, visual artist, working in whatever media I can get my hands on. We see sound systems here. We see monitors, big and small, reels of film, slides, slide trays, old slide projectors of different generations, and regular televisions, VCR players. It's quite curious and wonderful, all that's here. Everything that's in here, to some degree, functions and is of use to an artist. From film projectors, to slide projectors, to television monitors, these are all tools that are still in use, you know, from the late 60s, artists were incorporating television monitors, CRT monitors, slide projectors, film projectors in their works. And there are many artists in Miami who are working in these modes. And we make ourselves available to assist either individual artists or institutions in realizing their projects. The moment this project started in around 2015, the moment we announced what we were doing, the universe resonated and the community opened up and things just started appearing here. You know, we've been reached out to from different art institutions. They have no use for slide projectors anymore or their slides or their film projectors. And would we be interested in taking care of these things? And more often than not, we say yes, providing it's working. They're used in exhibitions. Well, there's a show opening this evening that we sort of gave a gentle assist to for the artist William Cordova, who wanted to use small television monitors. We helped him set his project up. We helped the PAM procure machines for Dara Friedman's exhibition, Perfect Stranger, had seven works that were using 16 millimeter film projectors. For the three months of that exhibition, we were very much involved in making sure that every time you went to see that show, it looked like day one, that the films were nice and squeaky clean, the projectors were running you know, the way they were supposed to run. There's other projects in which we're helping artists who need to transfer work from one format to another. I mean, if you're working in media, you always have to be aware that this material needs to migrate from one format to another if you want to continue working with it. If you have motion picture film, you might want to digitize them. That's sort of one of the goals, not to keep this information, but share this information and show people how to do what they need to do as opposed to just doing it for them. Performance, her own and that of her collaborators, is integral to Dara Friedman's experimental filmmaking. Her muse is Ukrainian-American Maya Duren, a dancer and filmmaker who made her mark in the early 20th century. Colombian-born Maria Jose Arjona is among scores of artists that performance artist Marina Abramovich has influenced since the 1960s. Like her Serbian-American mentor, Arjona engages in rigorous durational performances. The work of both artists is informed by personal and cultural history. Marina Abramovich presented her performance retrospective, The Artist is Present, at the Museum of Modern Art in 2010. Reenacting her 40-year performance history required the orchestration of multiple bodies. Each gesture was timed and positioned to intersect throughout the day with the movement of visitors in the space. Abramovich invited Arjona to participate in the entire process, from preparing to planning to performing. Arjona reflects on how the MoMA experience influenced the way she approached her own exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in Bogota this year. She invited me for the retrospective at MoMA, which was absolutely incredible. It was an amazing experience for me, not only because I love her work, 
but also the fact that it was giving me the opportunity to understand the logistics of it. How do you display these works? Also, I learned a lot from the entire exhibition, not only by performing the works, but actually understanding how everything was connected and how the performance at the entrance of the museum in a lot of ways generated a lot of narratives that were very instrumental for people when going to the exhibition upstairs. You were involved in helping prepare the artists that were involved in the reenactments there. We actually helped each other because we were coming from very different disciplines. Not all of them had long durational training, which is also something that we need to think about now that everybody's reenacting works. Different bodies that you require for different types of works. Some of us were helping on this specific part, and then the dancers were very helpful choreographing the shifts during the show. So I think everyone kind of suggested something that improved throughout the exhibition. It was something that was shifting a lot from having very specific instructions from Marina to perform the work. We started to understand that some of the works were not working because of the setup. Let's just describe what that first gesture was. There were two naked figures at the entrance that every visitor had to pass through. At MoMA, there was a second entrance for people with disabilities, which caused some sort of a, a big question, because if you have a second entrance, then why would you go through these two bodies naked? And then the door was so wide that we had to change a little bit. We had to walk forward to each other in order to have a very thin space for people to cross. So there were many like variations on the way we performed the work. You, with Marina, presented a workshop cleaning the house. It was a way of creating a shared sense of engagement. Yes, the bonding experience, also to understand each other's capabilities and understand what everybody could do, their strengths, your vulnerabilities as well. So I think the workshop was very important in order to arrive to MoMA, like a coherent force where everybody understood the nature of the work that we were going to perform, the significance and the relevance, historically speaking, at that time to reenact those works. I was reading one description about the idea of re-performing. We know Marina performed in many different settings the works that were brought to MoMA. Marina gave her ego away in sharing her performance with others. That is a, a problematic and also an opportunity in performance art. I think there's also like something that I've been talking about and it's this appearance of authorship when you give your work to another artist. I think Marina, she was very brave at MoMA on trying to push the boundaries of what we thought there was a possibility to reenact. In performance, always artists were saying, no, there's only one performance, one time, and there is this the nostalgic feeling of the 70s and the 60s where there was no documentation that singular event that was powerful and that will remain in people's memory. But I think at MoMA, when this happened, and then previously when Marina reenacted the work from Boys and Gina Pane and Body Export, I think she started to suggest that, that surrendering and, and accepting that there is a variation on these works as a new body enters, the narrative or the concept, and performs the work in the present, which I think is the most important element of reenactment now, is focusing on that difference 
in that capacity of the body to translate meanings through time and then propagate the idea and the knowledge that emerges from that act. And is that what you mean by the expression, the collective body in your own work? I think it's incorporated as well. I think performance has that in ability. It emerges maybe from one body, mostly, for example, in my work. Now I have a retrospective of my work at the Museum of Modern Art here in Bogotá. A devorarse contenedores pequeñitos para ella misma acabarse sin dejar pedazos ni huella ni manchas. Since I learned from the experience at MoMA, I was also very focused on the way I deliver instructions to reenact the work to a newer generation, a younger generation of artists here. So I changed the way, for example, Marina was very specific on how to perform the work physically, what we could do, what we couldn't do. I was more interested in delivering the concept of the work. I'm keen to see the translation. So in that translation, there's a multiplicity. And this possibility to also create archives in these new bodies in order to promote the work to the future. So I don't have to archive it in a different way. It's a mid-career survey for you. And uh, the title is To Be Known as Infinite. And I think that communicates very well the idea that you just proposed. Let's talk about how you prepared the artists you invited for your exhibition. I worked with some of them previously. For this exhibition at Mambo, we incorporated some other visual artists who were not trained in long-durational work. So I focused a lot on delivering some sort of exercises and rehearsals in the space of the museum in order to achieve some sort of clarity of what they were going to engage with. But I didn't give specific instructions on physically how to behave around the exercise or the performance they were going to reenact. I was very precise on the concept of the work because I was very interested in the way their bodies, younger generations, have very different needs, and they are crossed by very different narratives. Also, this country is completely different from when I left. There are other forces moving them, and I wanted to see how they were going to translate a concept with their bodies throughout the exhibition. I was giving a lot of space for them to change the work. How did it feel to see it unfold? It was one of the most extraordinary events I had seen, you know, to, to, to see your work reenacted by another artist and the changes that happen through time with the work and the way the concept evolves and actualizes itself just because this body is translating conceptually an idea. The work's changed a lot. Here in Colombia, the concept of reenactment is not clear. So at the beginning of the exhibition, everybody was saying, oh my God, she's not Maria Jose. She's not the original work. So we had to deal with this idea for a month until finally we created a guided tour that I gave on Thursdays to address the situation. After this happened, we started to get much more audience and they started to relate to the pieces in a completely different form. And it's the understanding of this is the original work. Also, there was a big difference from, for example, my experience at MoMA. When we performed at MoMA, we were performing, but right next to the piece we were performing, you had Marina's video performing the work, which creates a very complicated situation for the performers because you address that authorship. This is the original work. This is the work being reenacted. I didn't have any documentation of the work reenacted in the exhibition. So the audience understood the work as the original work. 
again. There was no way to compare. It's an, a way of inviting new performance artists to interpret and embody these concepts. Exactly. Without comparing themselves to you, which could be very intimidating. I think my way to also advance what Marina did and the possibility that she gave me to see the entire exhibition at MoMA. So I learned from the experience and what we are proposing here in a much smaller scale is to allow the work to be the original work. I think it's a big evolution. We're talking about all of these possibilities in reenactment and translation because I think the future of performance resides there. How we understand these new archives that are emerging from sharing the experience and erasing the performance I performed to begin with and starting to show the work as performed by the new artists. Saber llegar en medio de los lobos, de los dientes, de las heridas. Llegar como lo hace una mujer valiente. Maria José Arjona deliberately challenges the notion of performance art authorship by inviting other artists to freely interpret her time-based work. Likewise, Romanian artist and choreographer Alexander Perici sets the stage for collective ownership of what unfolds during her temporal performance-based projects. Perici delves into widely diverse cultural contexts, always enlisting local creatives to express her concepts. Munster, Germany, New York, New York, and Buenos Aires, Argentina are three of the cities where Perici has produced site-specific projects this year. The artist engages the physical body and the voice to explore memorials and monuments, history and invisible power structures. Inside and outside the institutional frame, she empowers the collective body through choreography that links the past to the present in real time. For Munster's 2017 sculpture project, Perici's intervention took place in the library of the city's historic town hall. During the daily enactments of leaking territories, performers recited the time and place of territorial conflicts around the world and punctuated each one with a unified symbolic gesture. Here we are, four and a half billion light years away from a dark matter bridge that connects galaxies together. Here we are, over 1,700 kilometers away from where first three television broadcast took place during the Romanian Revolution and the end of the Cold War. Here we are, three years away from when the protesters climbed the monument to the city founders during the Maidan Square uprising in Kiev, Ukraine. Perici activated the new museum's historic South Galleries with Co-Natural in early 2018. The repeating performance evolved over the course of each day. are singers like this one. The team has a variety of skills and gestures they'll be performing. Yes, uh, so some of the performers are professional dancers, uh, some are actors, um, and Paula Gerge, she is uh, also a singer, she sings very beautifully. I do need people that are comfortable with speech, with song, with spoken word, and also with movement in the work. So yeah, there is a variety of skills that somehow we use. The focus is uh, somehow on, uh, on an alliance between uh, signs and substance, let's say, and between images and bodies. So in the sense, of course, Go Natural stands for a sort of uh, yeah, non 
dialectic tension between nature and culture as well. How does this expand on what you've been exploring with the overlapping historical experiences and the leaking territories? Yeah. Well, there, there is a uh, yeah, I mean, there is a similar process in the work as well, uh, especially in the hour where there are five performers in the space. Uh, there is a, a somewhat similar. Um, Operations with leaking territories, where we connect different historical moments in time. Um, again, thinking about this fragmentation and this idea of a self that is not unitary and held in one place and in one moment, but it's rather distributed across um, yeah, space and time, and and uh, also life forms um, and yeah, memories. What a gorgeous space to be working in the historic South Galleries. Yeah, it's actually a quite difficult space. It's hard to, it's a very uneven space. It's hard to hang things from the ceiling. It was hard to install the, uh, the objects that were designed, let's say, for uh, precise spaces. Uh, and then it's this big space, which again claimed different investment and made different demands on the work. It does. I was thinking about your work in the City Hall in mm-hmm. Munster mm-hmm. as being just the figures, mm-hmm. it was all about them. Yeah, and now you have built a structure. The works are still very different, and the contexts are different, and also the yeah the the framework with which I was working. So here, basically, we still work with the museum space, uh, whereas there, the site brought a different information to the work. And the reason I mention that is I was reading about your commitment to not sell objects mm-hmm. with your work yeah. and not creating objects yeah. necessarily. And here, I see a spatial yeah. intervention that I think someone might want to collect that experience. Yeah, it's not collectible without the live action. In okay. a sense, I actually complicated my life. It's not that I found a uh, you know, more marketable, easier thing to sell, which of course could have been maybe an attractive thing to do, but I think conceptually it doesn't make sense or I don't want to circulate this image in total disconnection from, uh, let's say, a biological body or a material support that still makes different demands upon collectors also, but also institutions. Though the, the object is also quite demanding, so it's hard to install, it's heavy. We work also with the materiality of the object, so I work with it. It's not something that should be hidden. It's just as demanding as the life human bodies, but they're meant to circulate together always. Nature. People sitting having lunch on the grass, naked female bodies, a poster meant to boost productivity for the American female workers during World War II, a photograph of a Zapatista woman, a trace of possible solidarity across distance and divisions. A building that once housed the electricity company that powered the port of Buenos Aires became one of three sites that Perici activated with a group of tireless performers for three hours each day during Art Basel Cities Week in September 2018. The work titled Aggregate gave a sense of life on planet Earth. Performing as one, the troupe became a living body of shared memories their voices and movements channeled experiences of nature and culture. When we step into the space, we enter a burst of energy, a rhythmic pop music experience. Performers fill the room with unified movement, dancing and singing. When they reach a collective crescendo, they slow their movements and begin to drop randomly down to the floor, forming a silent, sinuous line. When they flutter back to life a few moments later, they channel a fresh sensory experience, this time voicing the sound of the ocean. Performance art in real space has an experimental counterpart in our post-digital world, live streaming internet-based art. Rhea McNamara 
a Toronto-based artist, writer, curator, and public programmer, has developed a way of involving networked publics in on- and offline spaces, image-making, and performances. We want to know more about the exhibition and event project she organized to spotlight enduring female icons. The year was 2011. The world was just waking up to the idea of the Internet as a platform for art. Pioneering tech artist Lorna Mills curated the animated GIF art for the online exhibition and created documentary GIFs during events. McNamara integrated the virtual art into real-life programming. What's interesting, when you do online projects that have this kind of IRL component, how the online has become very mythologized, but Shiro's was ultimately this monthly art party. And I was very interested to curate works and practices that are not necessarily recognized institutionally or even by, you know, artist-run centers or galleries and to kind of give that space. The online really played a role in becoming this field research our curatorial concept each month of who is the League of Legendary Ladies was brainstormed and archived online through a quote-unquote fuck yeah Tumblr. It was definitely, from a macro perspective, this exploration of fan culture and collaborative content creation. She Rose still exists online, has a presence. Yes, it has an online presence, and I would say that the relationships that happened and the collaborations has continued. Lorna, in the work that she did, which was the curating of the animated GIF works, I think that she was able, through Shiro's, to really build this like network of artists that hadn't really necessarily been connected before. I mean, when Shiro's was active, Shiro's was active in... 2011, 2012, so five years ago, there wasn't really a visible network for GIF artists and artists with a digital practice and an international network at that. And I think Shiro's really made that network visible. What were the logistics of organizing this exhibition? You know, it was very much a feminist project, and it was all about recognizing these significant female artists that have really endured in their careers. So we had always that knowing who the women were and then knowing with each woman, like the theme or the approach. Let's name a few of the women that you're speaking of that you highlighted in this project. Yoko Ono, Erica Badu, we did Madonna, we did Dolly Parton, Grace Jones, Nina Simone. We definitely focused on pop celebrities. And that was also an interesting aspect. These female artists in this populist realm that have persevered with goddess-like strength. From there, we then adopted as the methodology in terms of the process of making was really inspired by fandom practices. The Tumblr became this site that was about reblogging, ephemera, content creation from digital communities that surrounded these celebrities, and then that becoming a way that our artists would then be solidified. I really want to know more about how you engaged, at what level could you engage with these network communities? It might be helpful to situate Shiro's more with the social media platforms of that time. So a lot of artists discovered Google+. And Google+, was, at the time, I think, mostly the developers from Google. It was an early form of Instagram because unlike Facebook or Twitter at the time, you could share images and you could also share animated GIFs. It became, for this group, a way that 
we could disseminate like, okay, this is the upcoming event. And then people would be sharing things they found about the Shiro or images. So what was kind of really amazing was that through that Google Plus, which is a very concentrated collaborative space for the digital artists, and then through the Tumblr, which was the way that we were able to disseminate and recirculate the works and ideas that were created with the fan communities or even just the networked publics of Tumblr, that kind of became the way of sharing the ideas, but also sharing the work. It had a real space exhibition as well, right? Yeah. So Shiro's took place every month, predominantly at a gay bar, queer space called The Beaver. The other thing that Shiro's was quite responsive to was to local history and local queer radical and feminist history. So for instance, with the Grace Jones party, Grace Jones became an event that was not only a mediation on blackness and of course Grace Jones, but was also a mediation of the artistic excellence and legacy of the Jamaican arts community in Toronto. So for instance, one of the lead performers was Lillian Allen, who is recognized as the Canadian godmother of dub poetry. And we also had House of Monroe, which is a very important voguing house in Toronto, alongside the multi-channel projection of the different GIF works that would be programmed. conscious on and offline and blurring. And what became really interesting about Midway Through the Projects was that as a way to document the works, Lorna then did GIF documentation of the works being situated in this environment. You know, it was really great to document the project in a way that didn't necessarily get in the way of what was happening. Because I think if you talk to any artist in social practice or performance, sometimes like you do have to figure a way to document that respects the immediacy and the parameters of what happens in that physical space. Right, because there is a sort of intimacy that you want to establish. Exactly. You have to be really respectful of that. Shears was not for a capital A art audience. What were some of the unique challenges that you faced in organizing this Shiro's exhibition? I would say that first and foremost was resources and the lack thereof. And I think this speaks to internet-based projects. Up until that point, there was a lot of DIY organizing of shows. It was only after Shiro's that you started to see a lot of those artists getting gallery shows, being included in important group shows, or even having their works be acquired by institutions. So I felt like Shiro's was a big part of giving recognition to this type of work that wasn't at the time being recognized. What the internet was is very different from the internet of today. I think more so than ever, it's important to look at the ways that Online cultures has tools and tactics to really stand by an open society, open internet. Those are things that I still continue to think about. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Today we invite artists, curators, a media specialist, and an invigilator to share some of the stories behind challenging new work. They reveal how building relationships through ecosystems, architecture, choreography, media archaeology, and virtual community engagement makes exceptional art encounters possible. Thank you to the Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation for supporting this special podcast episode. In Issue 12 of the online periodical Exhibitions on the Cusp, 
Ours is among features exploring the complex logistics involved in presenting contemporary art. Visit freshartinternational.com to explore more than 200 episodes in our archive. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review Fresh Art International anywhere you go for podcasts. It means a lot to know you're listening. With the support of individuals like you, we've been sharing these conversations since 2011. We invite you to make a one-time donation to Fresh Art International or become a supporting member. The Knight Foundation will match every dollar we receive. Go to freshartinternational.com and click on the red support button to give what you can. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.